You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am so delighted that we get the chance to hang out together for the next hour as we take a tour of the arts. This week was Giving Tuesday and I got to host the Arts Hour of KOPN's special three-hour show celebrating and highlighting some of the many non-profit organisations that do stellar work in our community and make Mid-Missouri such a great place to live. And hosting the Arts Hour got me thinking that maybe this week's Speaking of the Arts should be an extension of the Giving Tuesday show, and I could chat with six more arts organisations about the challenges of this past year, maybe some of the silver linings, if there were any, and what they are fundraising for as the community launches into its month-long Como Gives campaign. Of course, there are many more arts organisations than the 10 I'm able to feature this week, looking to invest our donations into their programming, all of which we get to reap the benefits of in terms of vibrant, creative and arts-filled communities where we are able to explore and celebrate what it is to be human. And as it is a packed show and we have no time to waste, let's get going. First stop today is Ore Street Studio and its director, Mallory Donahue. Good morning, Mallory. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, what a year to start a new job as the director of an arts and events venue where the mingling of people is 70% of the equation. But 11 months later, you are still there. So maybe chaos is your motivator. Yes. um, You know, it's maybe not always the ideal thing, but I am a very enthusiastic problem solver. So (laughs) it it is a motivation for me. Yeah. So I started in January. January 1st of 2020. And I remember going into our third board meeting in March and we thought, well, maybe things won't be affected very much here. <laughs> it seems it seems so naive looking back at it. And I think it was just a couple hours after that board meeting that some kind of lockdown protocol was implemented and we had to change plans. So I, I am the director at Orr Street Studios here in Columbia, Missouri, and we are, uh, we have in the past been a very vibrant event space as well as an artist studio space and an art gallery. So the pandemic really has changed the equation for us. It absolutely has. So tell us a little bit about what the mission is of Orr Street Studios as a nonprofit organization. Sure. So our mission statement, and I don't have it verbatim, I should have, bad director Mallory, um, (laughs) is to connect the community with artists in the place where art is made. So our space is unique in that there are about 30 spaces and sometimes more than 30 artists actually inhabiting this space. There are studio spaces that are rented out to local artists. And most of our artists are actively working and making art in their studio spaces. So 
Four Street Studios is a converted warehouse space. And when it was first opened around 13 years ago, all of these individual studio spaces were created. And Chris Teeter, the president of our board, created these beautiful doors for every studio. So even when the artists aren't there, it's a, a beautiful place to be. But our artists are uh, have 24-7 access to their studios. So art is being made there all the time. And then when we would have open hours and we would have First Fridays or when we would host even a private event – People from the Columbia community would have the opportunity to interact with artists, you know, where they were creating and displaying their art. So there's so much unplanned, wonderful, creative interaction that would happen (laughs) (laughs) when you just have, you know, artists in their studios and people can walk in. Um, We also would host very consistently the second Saturday for kids events. In the summer, so people of all ages coming in, meeting with artists, and uh, that is something that has been unfortunately taken away from us. You know, it's it's not safe to do in the way that we used to do it. Like you say, you have part of your business that's mostly individual or maybe two or three artists sharing a studio, but then you have a giant chunk of your income that comes from events, from weddings and theatre performances and all sorts of things. And that's been at zero all year. That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) So how have you survived? Well, we had to have a bit of a paradigm shift. And, you know, Orr Street is a beautiful place. And anybody who's been there When you're there at night, there's all of these beautiful illuminated artworks. And when you're there during the day, there's beautiful natural light coming in. And so I think that as Orr Street evolved as a space and as a nonprofit, we kind of fell into that pattern of hosting a lot of private events. And it's a wonderful event space. But when that was taken away, we had to have this paradigm shift and we had to say, okay, How is this going to work? So since our artists have 24-7 access, we could have up to 30 people in the building at any time. And we felt that we really needed to close to general public walking in. And so that happened. A few of our artists had to discontinue renting their spaces due to the pandemic. And during this this year of 2020, it's been a bit of a reckoning across the country uh, with all of us realizing the pandemic highlighting for us the vast inequities in our society. And uh, we responded to this and to a tagging incident on our building by creating two artist-in-residence programs at Orr Street, which allowed us to fundraise, which allowed us to serve artists in our community as a nonprofit in a way that's different than we used to, but in a way that is a bit more pandemic-friendly at this moment. And so over the summer, we did a pledge drive, and we were trying to be very clear to everyone that we were trying to keep the lights on, you know, (laughs) that event uh, rental income had gone to zero and that it was uh, not safe to do that. And please would you give in order to keep Orr Street around. And a lot of people responded very positively and generously to that. And during that time, we also decided to just power ahead and develop these artist-in-residence programs. And so we dedicated four studio spaces total to artist-in-residence programs, three to the Orr Street Studios Black Artist-in-Residence Program, and one to the Orr Street Studios Artist-in-Residence Program. Our building in late summer uh, 
just right after the murder of George Floyd, was tagged with Black Lives Matter. And there was an ensuing sort of tagging back and forth on the building where that message was minimized by subsequent taggers. And we at Orr Street decided that Black Lives Matter is an absolutely appropriate message that our community needs to reckon with and honor. And we decided to keep it there. And as we explored these programs and we explored funding options, we were able to implement a Black Artist in Residence program that dedicated three studios to the mission of amplifying Black voices in our community. And Veterans United was very instrumental in helping us out with that and getting that off the ground. And now we are fundraising to continue the program through Como Gives, uh, continue to be able to offer our artist-in-residence programs, our second Saturday for kids programs, and then just seeing that there's more that Orr Street can do. How can we use our space in even more revolutionary ways? A bit of a positive in this very dark time. So here we are in December. You've had a successful fundraising year, given the circumstances, and everyone's asking for end-of-year donations to help feed people, educate people, health services, protect animals, plus, of course, all these amazing arts organizations. And how do you make your voice heard above all of that? I do love your peer-to-peer ideas that you have in Como Gives. So tell us a little bit about that and how you're making your voice heard. Yes. So we know that there are a lot of a lot of priorities, a lot of funding priorities, you know, very immediate needs of our neighbors and community members. But we also know that we all turn to the arts in these mm-hmm. hard times. We are all looking for pleasure, delight, inspiration. And, you know, now we are able to support some artists through our residency programs. So we would like to have our community look to supporting those programs and our peer-to-peer. Actually, I think we could have done more. I think that (laughs) (laughs) it's been a bit of a stressful time, but people were so excited to give. And I, like much of America, have been baking a lot and I'm doing a little sourdough peer-to-peer. We have a peer-to-peer fundraiser from a wonderful artist at Orr Street, Jen Wiggs, who will make an original piece based on your favorite piece of music. Love it. Yes. And then one of our board members, Ann Jacobson, she is going to be delivering flower bouquets throughout the summer to her peer-to-peer donors. And Barbara Hoppy is going to be offering a candlelit dinner. So we have a few contributions here that are artistic, but that aren't strictly, you know, studio artistic. (laughs) Uh, So we hope that we can delight people who do choose to give to Orr Street. We have a very ambitious goal for Como Gives that I think that we can meet, but we did want to entice you with some absolutely delightful, beautiful, tasty, inspiring things in exchange for your generosity through our Como Gives campaign. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Mallory Donahue, Director of Orr Street Studios. Good luck on raising your $10,000 through Coma Gives. And thanks for catching us up on what is happening at Orr Street Studios. It was a delight. Thank you so much, Diana. The next hopping off point on today's art tour is the Boone History and Culture Centre and its Executive Director, Chris Campbell. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Diana. 
Can I just start off by saying what a wonderful job you are doing as the Executive Director of the Boone History and Culture Centre. I feel like you have grown the reach of the organisation hugely over the past few years and given us so many more reasons to visit. But the organisation is, of course, far from new. You were founded back in 1924. So give us a potted history of the Boone History organisation. Sure. Well, first of all, you are too kind. <laughs> I've been here almost seven years now, and um, it's been a lot of fun. And, and what we've got here in the, in what we now call the History and Culture Center really is a community treasure. And it's been fun to try to build up, to try to massage, to try to create something here that we think the community deserves. So to answer the, the latter part of your question, we were founded in 1924, and when I say we, I mean the Historical Society, which is the organization, um, the nonprofit that is the owner and operator of what we call the Boone County History and Culture Center, which is our physical presence. And I realized with uh, that new name a couple of years ago, there's often some confusion. So we're still the Boone County Historical Society. We're still a nonprofit. But we're located in uh, a 20,000 square foot building called the Boone County History and Culture Center. But yeah, founded in 1924 in the uh, dining room or the bar, perhaps, <laughs> of the Daniel Boone Hotel in July. 17 men. But then there wasn't very much organization or even really uh, records kept that we've been able to find, uh, except for the occasional newspaper story. Until the 70s, when the organization moved into the Maplewood House at the invitation of the City of Columbia. And then they began to plan for having a building of their own someday. And that's what got built uh, between 88 and 1990. It was originally called the Walters Boone County Historical Museum. And uh, that's still the building that we're in today. And in the years since, uh, an addition was added on the west side. And we know that is the Montmany Art Gallery. Tracy Montminy, an incredible professor of art at the University of Missouri for 30 years and an acclaimed muralist and artist from the East Coast, uh, going back to the WPA days, left an estate gift for us with instructions about um, her desire for an art gallery here that be open and allowed for Boone County artists of all types, amateurs and professionals, to, to show their work as well as her work. And um, so now we, we get up to the present, the last several years. Uh, when I got here seven years ago, I saw something that I thought really just needed a little, um, I saw a diamond in the rough. <laughs> and I've been very, very fortunate to be able to have worked with three or four board presidents now, a board of directors that has changed over these last seven years. In fact, we've got four or five new members coming on in January. But um, because of they and the volunteers here, who all saw the same thing, that we've got something that probably for its first 20 years was not really leveraged or marketed or, or as an inviting uh, a place as it could and should be. And, and that's what we're still trying to do. Do you ever sit back and think this, this moment in time, this year is possibly one of the years that is going to define the century and the immense responsibility of documenting it as the local history organization? I mean, history is all around us all the time. It starts now for the future. So do you ever think about that? And how are you going to document this time? I do. I do. And, and thank you for intimidating me once more, because <laughs> that's, how, that's, how, that's how I always feel when I think about that. I'm like, holy cow. Um, 
what am I doing? Am I doing enough? Are we doing enough? Is it, uh, are we documenting uh, it the way we should? Because I completely agree with you. It is an immense turning point, I believe, in the community's history, obviously in the nation's history. And yeah, we're trying to be aware of that. We're trying to be cognizant of that, even though it's hard when you're right in the middle of it. Mm. But I do feel that all of us here have a responsibility to do that. And um, I, I told people uh, earlier in the year, well, I'll just tell you when we had to close, I believe it was March 18th, and we started thinking about, well, what are we going to do? We're, we're a place that exhibits history and produces concerts and art exhibits. So we realized we needed to turn to our online and, and leverage our website to the best we could. And I began to see in late March, almost right after we closed, that a few of the largest museums in the country were starting to promote these online diaries so that people could document how they were feeling about being locked down, about the virus itself, how this was changing their life. And I knew right then that we had to do the same thing. And part of what fed that was that Rudy from the Columbia Daily Tribune had uh, recently called and asked for information about the 1918 pandemic in Colombia and how that had affected us and did we have anything. And I had very little on that, almost nothing except for what we could find in newspapers. Um, and I just realized I don't want that to be the case 50 years from now when people are asking about this. Uh, I wanted the Boone County Historical Society to be able to have something. So um, that's something we're still pushing and promoting. We call it Remembering the Coronavirus Diary. And at the time, I was foolish enough to think that you know, we might be in the clear by July and that we could start collecting all the diaries. <laughs> uh, little did I know, uh, or did we know about uh, the fact that we'd still be dealing this even in a much bigger way uh, at the very end of the year. So how do people contribute to the diary? They can do it in a couple of different ways. We, we made options available. First of all, those types of instructions and hints and prompts are available on our website, which is boonhistory.org. And if you go to uh, explore in the navigation bar at the top, you'll find a drop down that includes remembering the coronavirus diary. In fact, there's a pop up when you get to the landing page. So you go there and you can do one of a few things. You can fill out an online form that's very easy and ask some really good questions. It's not too long. It asks five or six questions and there's two different forms. There's one for adults and there's one for kids. Or you can download a form, fill it out later, mail it in if you feel more comfortable with that. There's, in fact, a kid's diary that, in a PDF that can be downloaded that is several pages that allows them to color in their own pictures and images of what they're thinking and feeling and answer questions that might be um, pertinent to a 10-year-old, uh, but maybe not so much to an adult. And then we've asked people... We've given them an opportunity on that same site to upload anything they want to. It might be an audio file. It might be something they, the family recorded for TikTok. <laughs> it might be uh, a photograph they took that captured something in the community during the lockdown, during this year-long challenge that we've all faced, or something that was important to them. So there were several different ways of doing it. Well, you are part of the Como Gifts campaign this year, like many others, and your goal is 12000 Just quickly before we close, what are your main financial needs right now? Do you have any specific projects you want to fund with this fundraising campaign? 
Yeah, we do. And it's just, it has everything to do with what I was just talking about. Our biggest needs right now are to continue because we don't know not only how long we'll be limited in terms of the, the hours and the days that we can be open to the public. We still can't host art exhibit openings. We still can't host concerts. So our digital programming and the coronavirus diaries, one aspect, but there are other aspects. We had not put our art exhibits uh, in a virtual setting on our website prior to all of this. And now we're on our third one under the Montmini Gallery on boomhistory.org. You can find the current art exhibit. Um, the funds we raise through Como Gives are going to continue, are going to be used so that we can continue to program art exhibits, concerts that are either live streamed, like the one we've got coming up Saturday, or pre recorded, and then continue to work on and upload thousands of images from this vast uh, vintage photography collection of our community that we have in our vaults. So that's where the Como Give Funds will go to, programming, digital collections, being able to get more on the internet, on our website, so that people don't have to get in their car, come down here to enjoy what we're offering. Well, Chris Campbell, Executive Director of the Boone History and Culture Centre, thank you for all of the great work you do preserving our history, as well as this moment in time for generations to come. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. From Nifong Park, it's back into town to visit with Jill Womack, the Executive Director and so much more of Tripp's Children's Theatre. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. I feel like the world could throw 10 pandemics at you and you would just be like, oh, sure, we can work with that. On with the show. You know, you do learn to plate spin. It is true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm wondering, are you just good at pretending or do you wake up every day thinking, yeah, we've got this? No, I don't sleep. So that's not a problem. (laughs) That would explain it. So you always have a ton of things going on, pandemic or no pandemic. But let's start with your schedule of Advent Sundays and Christmas Eve concerts. Tell us about those. Oh, it's so exciting. Um, The wonderful world of Zoom. There's a bright spot because we've been able to ask kids who've grown up in the TRIPS program, who are first generation TRIPS kids, our current TRIPS kids, our guest artists all over the United States have lent their time, their talent, their voices to these amazing concerts. So everyone is different. And they're on Advent Sundays and Christmas Eve at five o'clock. And it is the most wonderful Christmas music in the world. And and the voices, you know, Nolly Moore, Bob Bohan, Melissa Webel Bohan, Shelby Ringdahl, Kyle Sherman, you couldn't ask for more beautiful voices. And it's so uplifting to hear this Christmas music and, you know, just have a moment to sit back and go, ah, everything could be okay. So have you pre-recorded all of these? We did. We pre-recorded thanks to the wonderful Melissa and Kyle Shearer. They've edited and crafted together, knitted together some really gorgeous 45-minute concerts, short and sweet. Tune in at five. You can go to the website, uh, tripskids.com, and you can get all the Facebook links for the recorded stream. Fantastic. And so you can watch them after the fact too. You don't have to watch them at the time. I didn't know we could, but you can. It's great. So if you can tune in at five, (laughs) we'll repost them every week so that you can see them. 
So it's fundraising month. Every organisation, arts or otherwise, is clamouring for donations. And TRIPS not only has all the regular costs to cover in a pandemic year, but you are also moving to a new home in 2021 yes. with all mm-hmm. the costs that that entails. So it's a few weeks since we last chatted and I wondered if there was any new news about the move. Not yet, but we have raised $32,000 well, $132,000 to the total $175,000 estimated to renovate and move and get settled. So that's really exciting. And we're doing it in a couple of different ways. Thank goodness for Como Gives. What an amazing organization for so many organizations. Um, So we've got a couple of fun peer-to-peer campaigns, which are personal challenges to raise money. We've got one board member who's got a magnificent Corona beard, and he is saying you have the right to redesign his beard and shave it (laughs) for him after the pandemic is over. Our wonderful artist, Brandy Teeman, will let you commission a 16 by 20 inch painting of your favorite princess or superhero. I've got one. I will help send a princess to your children's party when it's time to gather and safe to gather again. And the clicks have got a, they've got the most delicious cheesecakes in the world. So I must say, you know, get in on that action. And then we've got our wonderful swag. So we've got our designer designed a really beautiful logo this year that is all the words about our trips, kids and the company and the work we do really beautiful. And the swag is on our website. You can get to the link there, tripskids.com. And it socks and clocks and the kids told me I need stickers and buttons. So of course, you know, totes, we have it all up there. And a percentage of every one of those sales goes to trips. And then our wonderful board members put together an art auction. Not only did we get the brilliant David Spear and Jenny McGee to donate pieces, but one of our board members got Disney artists to send original signed cells. Amazing. So that's also you can get to that through our website, tripskids.com. And then, of course, the 21 Club is the big campaign. And we're asking the community to donate $21 a month on the 21st of the month so we can move in 21 and reopen our doors to the next generation of Trips Kids. So lots of ways to you can have artwork or swag or um, cheesecakes. And then just give to give because we, it's been such a difficult year. We, we've lost about 125000 in revenue this year having to pivot online. And it just that just continues as we eke into 2021. So, you know, we really want to be standing on the other side of this pandemic and, and serving the community and continuing our work and, and really investing in our kids and teaching them to be the stars of their own lives. It's so important. It seems that like no matter what happens in the world, there will always be young people who are smitten by the stage and parents who want to make them happy. So the challenge of finding participants and supporters is kind of built into the simple passing of generations. Mm-hmm. And I guess at this point, after being around for 20 years, you probably have the children of early <laughs> early participants that are sending their children. I'm a grandma to about 20 trip, second generation trips kids now. So I Gigi Jill, there I am. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the major challenges of, of maintaining the stream of people into an organization like TRIPS? You know, mercifully, the word of mouth has been so great. And, and the work of the collective team of our artists and our directors and our guest artists and our designers, it's, it's been so good. I'm really proud of the whole team because it really is a it's a collaborative effort and I'm I'm really proud of the work that we do and the care that we take not only with you know each individual child but 
in the quality of the work overall. When you when you see a trip's production, I'm I'm always genuinely pleased when I hear someone say, "I can't believe that was kids. I can't believe that was little kids doing this quality of work." Um, and then, of course, going and seeing our kids move on to succeed so greatly in their own lives, whether it's participating in student government at their schools because they've had such a benefit of the foundation of confidence in public speaking and creative problem solving at trips. They're able to move on in a real significant way, or they're the leads in the school productions or their college productions, you know, and some of them are on the stages in regional theaters and national tours, and one's even been on Broadway. So it's from top to bottom, whether they stay in theater or not, I think the effect and the, and the cumulative work of day to day of I'm responsible of this team and here's my job and I'm going to step in and I'm going to create something magnificent. I think just that overall experience from the time they're very little, the cumulative benefit of it is just extraordinary. And so I think that helps us so greatly in in bringing new people into the family, the Trips family. You you read my mind or read my notes because that's actually what I was going to ask you <laughs> next or talk about is, you know, when I see your Trips actors on the stage being so confident in the spotlight, speaking with clarity, singing with gusto, I think what wonderful gifts you and the stage have given them and gifts that they'll be able to use throughout their life. And I look back on my young life and I think, gosh, what a huge benefit it would have been to me had I had a trips option in in my life. What stage gift have you used the most over the years? You know, I didn't have, I didn't even have a theater program in my high school so I didn't even start doing theater really until I was at college here at University of Missouri. Um, but I always, I always loved it. And I, I think truly it makes you fearless. You know, you're not afraid to hear no. Gosh, actors hear no all the time. So I, I always say, I look at people and say no for now. You know, we'll work around that. We'll find a way to work around that. And I think the other benefit is I look at every opportunity and say, what's the win-win for everybody? You know, how do we all, because that's what you do when you work collectively to create something, you know, how, how do you make everybody look good? How do you make every, the project itself and everybody in it, we all need to look good. We all need to put our best foot forward and do our best work. And so I think that level of work ethic, everything I go into, I, I say, how can I be the best I can, have I done my best? Have I given it my best? Am I challenged to do more? Do I keep growing? And that's, I think, what we always talk to the TRIPS kids about. Keep growing. Do your best. Have you given your best today? Well, Jill Womack, Executive Director, Artistic Director, Dream Maker, Fundraiser, and <laughs> Theatrical Magician. <laughs> I'm putting that on my resume. <laughs> I have my, my fingers and toes crossed that you reach your fundraising goal of $40,000 by the end of December. And I'm excited to see you into your new home in 2021. Absolutely. Thank you. Happy holidays. Same Diana. to you. Thanks, Thank Jill. You. Let's keep up the pace and hop on over to the Odyssey Chamber Music Series for a chat with Executive Director Ayako Tsuruta. Good morning, Ayako. Hi. So for decades to come, people are going to look back on this period and write books and plays and movies about the challenges that everyone has gone through. And slowly, it'll just fade into the history books. So thinking about the year you have experienced with the Odyssey Chamber Music Series and thinking about how you would want to record it, like what are some of the moments that stand out for you, good and bad? What will be in your diary for the future? Oh, wow. 
I think one of the good things that came out from this pandemic and experiencing it all together is that we have a greater appreciation for people getting together and especially in terms of music concerts and such because it's a one place that everybody gets together and we have a chance to make music and share the music and use the intermission to catch up with people and we really miss all of this and to think that our last concert was back in February it's just unimaginable. That's almost a year ago. And we really miss, you know, performing for our community. And our performers have been resilient, but we certainly had to make our adjustments. And even though we're chamber music and we're smaller in scale, and therefore we have fared actually quite well considering other music organizations, we still had to be creative in figuring out how to get together to rehearse and to actually produce a concert where there are no audiences. And from my perspective as a director, we had to really think about the order of the program because some of the other instruments, such as the winds, brass, and even vocalists, that has a lot to do with the aerosol, we did not want to put other instrumentalists immediately afterwards. So we had to keep putting them towards the end of the first half or the second half. So there are some things that we had to um, adjust. But going back to what you said about good and the bad, well, I think I just mentioned the bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, we do miss our good times, don't we? We do. And people will talk about, you know, well, will things change going forward? Maybe we've all got used to this virtual world and will people be prepared to come back? But I think you're right. I think at the point when venues are opened up again, we are going to see a flood of people that are just so happy to be out again. (laughs) Right. But I also think that there will be some changes. And this is, again, for the uh, better or for worse, because um, because everything is online, we are experiencing for the first time what it is to be online for all of us, and that, in fact, it is possible to a certain extent. Now, if you have experienced live concerts, then you know that it's absolutely essential There is no replacing live concerts. But on the other hand, if you have never experienced live concerts, and if you are satisfied with what's going on online, then maybe that's where our audiences will be. So we'll find out when we get there if the community will want to continue with the kind of live concert scales that we used to hold or if it's going to be half and half. Have you seen this year, because we've been doing things virtually, have you seen your audience expand and in different places, places around the country, around the world of people that used to live in Colombia but aren't here any longer but can now access your recordings? Do you think that you've maybe grown your audience this year? Right. So that is a very interesting question. I don't have the means to really gauge exactly how many people we have gained in that way. But I will say this, because we are online, we have had more international reach. Um, And that may mean personal family friends or professional friends, but they have been checking out our videos. So that's been very exciting. And going forward, this was actually supposed to be our climate competition year. And that's the biennial national competition. It's a huge event that we put on on 
odd number years. But unfortunately, it's not possible to do this in 2021, so we'll postpone it for probably another two years. But for something like that scale, the national competition, I think it makes sense to go forward and think about live streaming, which is actually what most competitions are doing these days, just so that, you know, they can have their family and friends tune in and actually hear the live concerts and live competitions, which is quite exciting. Are you looking for, in terms of maybe your fundraising appeals for this year and next year, are you looking at investing in more equipment that will allow you to do better streaming? Yes, definitely. It's something that we want to consider for the future seasons. And as we all know, it takes a great deal of resources, which is why we are doing the fundraising right now. And this is an endeavor that will go on for a few more years. But right now, as you know, we have Como Gifts. We have a, a matching challenge going on. And every dollar that's donated towards Odyssey through Como Gifts, up to $3,500 will be matched dollar by dollar. So if you're listeners and if you're Odyssey fans, please consider donating to us. And you have, I think, a $15,000 goal. So what other things are you hoping to fundraise for in this end-of-year campaign? So live streaming requires excellent microphone. We need people to record our concerts. So that's where it will go. But actually, um, before we do that, I'm mostly interested in uh, supporting our artists. And as I mentioned, we have not stopped performing. We have had concerts in October and November. Even though we're online, uh, we have real performers performing on stage. In this case, the First Baptist Church's Sanctuary. And I'd like to really thank the First Baptist Church for this because they've trusted us to use their facility even through this height of pandemic. And I'm just so ever grateful because it's almost as if Odyssey has never stopped, um, except that we don't have live audiences in the venue. But, you, you know, I think supporting artists right now is so essential a lot of the professional musicians have been furloughed and I think Odyssey has done well because we're local organizations and uh, we have always contracted primarily local artists. So even though we had to make some program adjustments, we programmed, for example, the big concerts like Evolution of the African American Spiritual and Flamenco Competition, the Kids at Heart, anything that requires a crowd, we will be reprogramming this in the future seasons when we can gather again. But, you know, artists give our community such hope. And I think in a height of pandemic, hope is so essential. (laughs) It's so important because otherwise we have nothing to look forward to in life. Right. Just quickly before we end, tell us one thing that you are looking forward to on, especially on your program for 2021. Well, I'd like to see if we can, in fact, gather again, <laughs> because <laughs> our program really caters to what community looks forward to as well. And I have been asked, you know, won't you program this? But if it's a program that everybody would benefit from being in the sanctuary, then I will wait until it's possible. And so I'd like to get through this period first see if the vaccines can be (laughs) circulated in a timely manner and if everybody is confident enough to step out. And I think it's uh, going to be a step-by-step process. 
I do look forward to gradually opening the concerts again and catching up with everybody, honestly. Me too, me too. Well, Ayaka Suruta, Executive and Artistic Director for the Odyssey Chamber Music Series. It is always such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Diana. Our next chat today is with Stefan Freund, Music Director and Principal Conductor for the Columbia Civic Orchestra. Good morning, Stefan. Good morning, Diana. How are you? I am well and delighted to have you on the show finally. We have emailed several times about Mizzou's annual New Music Festival. But anyway, I am thrilled to welcome you to Speaking of the Arts. Thanks for having me. So you are a man of many hats, and this morning I want to chat with you about the Columbia Civic Orchestra, as we have never featured the orchestra on the show before, and I honestly don't know a huge amount about it. So tell us about the mission and the vision of the orchestra. Our mission is to provide performance opportunities to people in the community and to share our music with the community. And a lot of the work that we do is collaborative with other arts organizations, for example, the Columbia Chorale, the Mizzou Choral Union. Uh, We even have partners in education with uh, Locust Street School downtown. So we really try to be as active a part of the community as possible. We don't have auditions to join the orchestra. Anyone is welcome, but we still have a a really vibrant orchestra. We don't have a professional year-round orchestra in Columbia, as people probably know. So we really serve that function. Um, We have really exciting concerts. We play very challenging repertoire, and uh, we oftentimes have fabulous guest artists join us as well. I'm curious about the musicians who are part of the orchestra. Are they all local musicians who ordinarily would meet relatively regularly through the year in practice? Or is it more like the Missouri Symphony Orchestra where the players are scattered around the country? Right. We're the exact opposite of the Missouri Symphony. So everyone is from around here. Our furthest members are from Marshall and Jeff City. Um, We rehearse regular every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Of course, we haven't been doing that this past fall, but previous to that, we had regular rehearsals every Thursday night. And uh, we have usually five concerts a year. And those concerts, again, with our mission of trying to get to the community, we perform in a lot of different venues. First Baptist Church, Missouri United Methodist Church, of course, the Missouri Theater. And uh, we've even done concerts at high schools at, at Jeff Jr. and Rockbridge Senior High School and also at the Lenore Community Center. So if players don't have to audition, they can just turn up and be part of the orchestra. I mean, I'm presuming that sometimes people turn up and play and they just aren't really playing in key or or keeping the time. How do you manage that? Yeah, so I think there's a self-selection process to what we do. People pretty quickly realize if they fit in or not. Also, it's not exactly that simple. We Anyone is welcome to join, but we do have an orchestra manager, especially for the winds who organizes our personnel. So if you're a wind player, you can contact our orchestra manager. He or she can put you on the list. And if we have an opening for that position, then you can come in and play with us. But all of those roles are assigned and defined. So um, everyone is welcome to participate. But of course, we only have so many slots. So we have our manager figure out who is part of our personnel for each concert cycle. Uh, For each concert cycle, we play different repertoire. That repertoire has different instrumentation demands. And so our orchestra manager figures that out, puts everyone in the right place. When you talk about a concert cycle, you mean like a season? Each 
concert within the season, I would define as a cycle. So we usually have five concert cycles for one for each concert. And when I say cycle, I mean the rehearsal process leading up to that concert as well as the concert. You say you play challenging music. When you have so many community players and people that are maybe joining an orchestra for the first time and trying out, how does that balance? What When you say challenging music, what do you mean exactly? Difficult music or unusual, mostly unplayed music? Yeah, that's a great point. It's actually both. We certainly play challenging music like Beethoven symphonies, Stravinsky, Bartok, but we also play new music. We participate in the Missouri Composers Orchestra Project, which happens every March. And we premiere usually four brand new pieces on that program. So I'm, I'm a composer myself. I'm the artistic director of the Mizzou New Music Initiative. And a big part of that mission is to promote new music. So I've combined that role and my role in the civic to really energize new music in our community and our state. One of the things that I've always really enjoyed about the new music festival that you put on at Mizzou is that you have been very cognizant and conscientious about representing diverse voices, which is generally not the case within contemporary classical or classical music. And given how many journeys we've all taken this year in recognizing that the arts are predominantly white and that we need to all do better at representing diverse voices, particularly in orchestral music, what conversations have you had within the Columbia Civic Orchestra about expanding the repertoire and playing a different canon of music? Yeah, so definitely we're able through MOCOP to always have diverse voices, people of color, female composers. And of course, it's it's harder with the standard rep because almost by definition, the standard rep is white and male. Um, however, we certainly try to bring in other voices. Uh, for example, we have African-American guest artists. Uh, we have other people of color. So we, we try to address this issue of diversity in a number of different ways. I don't think it necessarily has to be uh, the composer's byline. It can be the guest artist. It can be the people in the orchestra. Um, we had African-American conductor for a production last fall. So there are numbers of ways that you can integrate diversity into what you're doing as an art organization. Right. You shared with me this morning a new recording of the orchestra playing How Can I Keep From Singing by the 19th century preacher Robert Larry, which is one of these technically brilliant compilations of musicians playing in their homes that is then all edited together, which I have been so fascinated by all year from an editing and technical point of view. Talk to me about how that stitching together process works. So what I did is I, first of all, made the arrangement myself and then had a click and backing track made to it. So this is a, a click track is just sounds like a metronome. It's the metronome marking of the piece. And then also a backing track, which was just the piano playing along with it. And we distributed that, the music and the click and backing track to all of our players, along with a set of directions on how to record and as I was making those directions, I was wondering, how much do I micromanage this and how do I leave? <laughs> well, I, I learned that you really have to spell out every little thing that people, people do. For example, 
play with the backing track, play the articulation on the backing track, these sorts of things. So we were able to fix a lot of things in post-production and the editing process. I'm really thrilled with the way it turned out. I think it sounds fantastic. But we definitely learned some lessons along the way. Like, for example, one thing, I, I definitely need to give people bowings. I thought, oh, well, it'd be kind of nice to see what people do. But um, then you get 16 different sets of bowings, of course, and that kind of results in the phrasing and the articulation being a little bit different. So we'll implement some of those changes uh, when we do our next project, which will be uh, in the bleak midwinter for, for December. And um, hopefully things will be a little easier next time around. So you are part of Como Gives this season and you have a goal of $10,000 you would like to raise. Do you have any idea of what you, what are your financial needs right now? What do you want to use that for? Do you have specific projects or scholarships? Yeah, well, we have, of course, our monthly payroll and the, the forces that help us move forward as an arts organization. And then, of course, these production costs for these videos. It's not cheap. We have to pay for storage room, for the editing, the audio and video editing. Uh, that's one of the things that's very unique about what we do in music is when you're getting 12 to 16 different recordings from 12 to 16 different players, they all sound a little bit different. They're all recorded in different spaces and we have to blend those together so they sound the same. So it's a very interesting challenge that's specific to what we do. All that costs money. And of course, we want to also spend money in getting the word out about what we do. Of course, we like to pay our guests and some of our players as well. So that's where our, our money goes. Well, I am so glad we had a chance to catch up this morning. Thank you so much, Stefan Freund, Musical Director of the Columbia Civic Orchestra. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. The last stop on this week's Whistle Stop Arts Jaunt is at the Columbia Entertainment Company, where we get to check in with actor, musician and current treasurer, Enola White. Good morning, Enola. Good morning. So despite the crazy, frenetic, topsy-turvy year we have all had, I have been so moved and impressed by my theatre friends who have found ways to make magic happen, despite no audiences, next to no revenue and a dark stage. So thinking back over this past year, what have been some of the moments that you have been most proud of? I think the moment that I am most proud of is immediately when the first lockdown happened in Boone County. The CEC Board of Directors, the Talking Horse Board of Directors, and the Maplewood Barn Board of Directors came together in what we like to call a meeting of the theater minds. And we talked about what can our seasons potentially look like and how can we help support each other? Um, and so that's like, that's a moment that I'm extremely proud of. But then just for CEC coming right off of that, we were having our trivia night was going to happen uh, the Friday of what was going to be Mizzou spring break. And as we know that <laughs> that didn't come to fruition, but we immediately pivoted to a virtual format to give hope and something for people to look forward to, because in those times there was a lot of uncertainty, not saying that there's not any uncertainty right now, but even more so, there was a lot of trepidation, a lot of fear. And so it was just, it was nice to have a bright spot on the horizon with our, our trivia night. One of my favorite events of your year was the Murder Mystery Live Zoom event you hosted back in, was it the spring or the early summer? I can't remember. It was just... You know, it all blends together. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much fun. It was so much more than I expected. It was so much more than the usual Zoom experience. What were the logistics behind that event? 
So in my previous life, <laughs> I had worked with another uh, nonprofit in Johnson County, Missouri, and they did live murder mysteries. And I had been doing some some searching online to figure out what can we do that's virtual, that's fun, that's different. And I was like, oh, a murder mystery. Duh. It's a good way to have um, people be interactive and it, it gets people a chance to perform. And it's something that's different. Um, so we, we went with it and we rolled with it. And we've done a couple for more kind of private fundraisers, but we're looking forward to bringing those back and, and doing more of those in the spring. It was a really great event. Is it is it a standard format? Is it something that you bought the script for or you wrote the script? Is it like a in a box? <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> um, so there are, of course, your standard murder mysteries out there. And there are a lot of virtual murder mysteries available, um, especially right now. But there were a couple that I had written for the organization that I had worked with previously that we, we've used. Bullets over Broadway, uh, or no, Bullets on Broadway, not Bullets over Broadway. That's an actual show. <laughs> um, <laughs> the one that the murder mystery that we produced, that one was uh, one that you purchase, and it has a variety of different characters. And so you can repeat it as many times as you want because you'll never have the same character. And even if you do have the same characters, the murderer is always someone different, and the way that they interact and the questions that you get from the audience is always different. So it's always a unique and fun experience. So as a grant-seeking organization, obviously you're planning your seasons, what, 18 to 24 months out mm-hmm. to accommodate grant deadlines. And what I think a lot of people maybe don't appreciate is that just because you've purchased the rights to stage something, if the world changes, that does not give you the rights to stream it. So what have been some of the challenges there? I mean, anything that you have done you did one recently, um, the one woman show. Yes, Grounded. Um, we were we were very fortunate with Grounded because that's a show that our play selection committee has been exploring for years. But doing a one woman, a one person show in our space, that's not normally what a CEC show would look like. Um, so we were struggling with how we could produce it. And maybe we were thinking like maybe Talking Horse in the black box style, would it would be more successful there. But we were fortunate that this situation allowed us to do a show that has been coming back routinely to play selection. So we we were able to secure the streaming rights for it. And it's it's a pretty similar process as you go through the licensing rights for um, a normal performance. A lot of shows have streaming rights available. And there are several that don't. Pretty much if a show has been a major motion picture, <laughs> um, it's not going to have streaming rights. Are you able to get your money back on shows that you weren't able to produce, but you'd already purchased the rights for? Yes, a lot of the licensing companies are very, very flexible in returning and refunding any dollars that we we put down. So we had to cancel Adam's Family. Obviously, we canceled the producers and Arsenic and Old Lace. So both of those, all of those have been major motion pictures. So the streaming rights aren't available for those. So they they were gracious and refunded us our monies. So Columbia Entertainment Company is in the enviable position of owning its own home, which must have given you some financial comfort this year. But as we now stand on the cusp of giving season, what are some of the projects that you are looking for funding for? We are looking for funding to help support our virtual formats. Um, We know that this format of production is not going away. If anything, what COVID-19 has showed us is that we can do what we thought we couldn't do previously. Um, So we're looking to beef up our streaming and our virtual production capabilities because that's the newest frontier. And even when, you know, 
we all go back to normal, there's still going to be that demand to be able to have theatrical experiences in, in your home. And we've touched so many people from the East Coast to the West Coast abroad um, by having these virtual opportunities that it's nice to have those kinds of patrons, even if they're not in our backyard here in Columbia, we can still interact with those people who just want a little piece of CEC in their home. So we're looking to expand and beef up our, our virtual production capabilities so that includes um, the purchase of equipment to do virtual uh, production, so cameras and various uh, other equipment pieces that we need, and uh, hopefully also beefing up our internet system um, so we can handle uh, the Wi-Fi usage that's going to be going on in the building. Right. Earlier this year, you and I had talked about the need for more Black stories to be told on our stages, and there was you and Barrett Brooks, and you had a couple of really fabulous suggestions. Any chance that we might be seeing a greater diversity of lives being represented on the CEC stage as we as we move forward into next year? Absolutely. I think, again, the virtual format has allowed us to do things that we weren't able to do. And it has allowed us to to have patrons come in and volunteers come back that aren't in Columbia. Um, so, for example, in Disenchanted, we had Catherine Baines, who now lives in Kansas City. Um, she used to be a staple on CEC stage. We were able to bring her back into the fold. And it's a wonderful life. Um, you're going to see a couple of names on that cast list who no longer live in Columbia, but used to be on CEC and in the theatrical stage. Um, a lot. And I think that having this capability to expand beyond the physical bubble that is Columbia is going to allow us to tell more stories with more diversity, um, just because we'll be able to reach more people and get the word out and have a more broad audience and um, more volunteers to get involved. Fantastic. And you have an exciting new role with the theater next year, right? Yes, effective January 1st, 2021, I will be the executive director, interim executive director of Columbia Entertainment Company. Is that like a full-time staff position? It is not. It's a part-time position. So CEC, we have been exploring an executive director position for quite a few years now, and we wanted to revise our artistic director position as well. So we pulled the trigger this year because like I've been talking about, there's so many new things, there's so many new avenues, and our board is really set up to be an advisory board, not a managerial board. So we wanted to get them back into that advisory capacity. So that's why we have gone ahead with the executive director and artistic director interim positions with Elizabeth Alexander serving as interim artistic director. So we're excited to see where this is going to take us. And hopefully you'll see many, many more new things out of CEC, um, because we'll have a little bit more gumption behind um, these new managerial positions in the theatre. Fantastic. Well, congratulations, Enola White. I am delighted that you will be in charge of Columbia Entertainment Company going forward. Thank you, as always, for taking time to chat today. Absolutely. No problem. Thank you for having me. And that is it for another week. I encourage you to go to comogives.com and check out the arts organizations that are listed there, all of which would love to invest our donations into their programs. And while you're there, do pop over to the community category and give some love to KOPN. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Mm-hmm.
again to my sextet of guests today, Mallory Donahue from All Street Studios, Chris Campbell of the Boone History and Culture Centre, Jill Woback from Tripp's Children's Theatre, Ayako Suruta of the Odyssey Chamber Music Series, Stefan Freund of the Columbia Civic Orchestra, and Enola White from the Columbia Entertainment Company. Thanks also to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more Peaks Behind the Arts Curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia! Columbia!